0: Nothing in the world can stop me now!
1: that jarring cacophony tells you that you're back with the power of three podcast the podcast that's bringing you an episode a day for the entire month of november we must be mad we're taking a quick break from published doctor who as we're having a look today at some doctor who that you can actually watch there's an idea watching doctor who instead of reading it what madness what madness is this i'm kenny smith I'm here with a pair of co-conspirators making their first appearances of the month, but definitely not the last. Let's go with the one who's closest to me geographically, you'd better say hello co-conspirator number one.
2: I guess that's me then. My geography is not great. Yes, hi everyone, it's John. Looking forward to having this riveting discussion about a fantastic episode.
3: And further up the road, you'd better say hello hi everyone i'm stevie and uh yeah all i can say is
2: <laughs> no need to bring the tone down this early on For get the sake
3: yes i am working i'm working hard on that yep
2: i can tell this is why this is our first first appearance this month
3: <laughs> because
2: of the complaints mary whitehouse has risen from her grave to complain about this
3: podcast
1: <laughs> There's a horror film that somebody could do. Mary Whitehouse has risen from the grave. That actually would be hilarious. I'd watch that.
3: <laughs> that brings us back to the Mary Whitehouse experience, doesn't it? Oh, you wouldn't it let it lie.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> see what I did there?
3: Uh-huh. One million comedy you did, fans. Yeah. Yes, yep.
1: Yeah. We're not here to talk about the Mary Whitehouse experience and David Baddiel and Rob Newman and uh, Hugh thing, Hugh Dennis and Steve Punt. No, we're here to talk about. The Underwater Menace, which received its Blu-ray animated release earlier this week. There we go, it's on our shelves, but we're not going to discuss the animation yet because on a wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey way, we're recording this before it's actually been released. So we're just going to talk about the story itself in general, as that seems a fair thing to do. So, Stevie, when was the first time you saw The Underwater Menace? Um, last night.
3: What? Yep, yep. Last night, while I ran on a treadmill, having listened to the audio, I thought, oh, look what happened on the 1st of November. I've got access to everything I didn't have before. So I watched the the available episodes. I didn't read the book because that was 1988, I think the book came out. So this was, this was New Who. I had seen the fish people but I didn't know how it all fitted together. So there you go. Very, very new to me.
1: What about yourself, John? Were you somebody who first saw episode three in VHS and then episode two later when it was recovered?
3: Yep, uh,
2: exactly, exactly. I I had, a bit like Stevie, um, I listened to the Lost TV uh, soundtrack, Lost TV episode soundtrack, ages ago. Um, It wasn't a particularly easy listen, but Yeah, so uh, that's when I first watched it, but I also refreshed my memory by indulging in the glorious new experience of the the Hooniverse on the iPlayer. It's a
1: fantastic asset, it really is. Now, I I first saw Underwater Menace Episode 3 on the fan video network in a Wobble Vision VHS copy. It must have been probably 6th, 7th, maybe even 8th generation. So you can imagine it was quite noisy. There wasn't really much you could see and uh yeah that was interesting and then of course we learned that episode two had been recovered and i remember actually getting a message on facebook from a friend who said oh there's a doctor missing episode recovery announcement today and said oh which one and he replied and said who says it's only one and then mm-hmm. wouldn't say any more and then of course came the official announcement and like, yay and of course the, the great thing about this is that the sensor clips of this existed that they'd found in Australia and they matched perfectly mm-hmm. with the ones that were cut from this print it's obviously had been returned from a land down under and reunited. So it was great to be able to see that when it came out officially in
2: DVD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a BFI screening as well, wasn't it? That's the one. Like with Galaxy 4. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Of course, the thing that this story has got a bit of a reputation, I think it was Paul Cornell, Keith Topping and Martin Day in the Doctor Who discontinuity guide in the 90s, referred to this story as Doctor Who's equivalent of Plan 9 from outer space. And that was, of course, purely based on episode three. So John, would you say that, is that a fair assessment?
2: Yes, broadly speaking, I know I always try and see the glass half full, but uh, I don't think for me, I, I recovered Long before I, I, I saw any actually, any moving uh, images from the story, I remember when I was a, a wee boy seeing in one of my Doctor Who books, I can't remember which one exactly, but there was a photograph of the, the fish people. And I remember thinking then, and, I'm, and I am underline the fact I was a very small boy, but I remember thinking, they look terrible. And I think that coloured my view of the story. Thereafter, long before I tapped into kind of the the fan lore about how poor a a story is, I do always try and see the good points, and I can see good points in this story. But it's really not the best. I'll say more later.
3: (laughs) Stevie, is it Plan Nine from Outer Space? I thought so from the audio, and because the audio does not do any favours, I feel. I uh, also think that both for Patrick Troughton and Joseph First, you have to be able to see them in this, because it makes an awful lot more sense and you can see what they're trying to do in it. So I think it, I think it can, you can pull it apart. But you know, it's not the worst, the worst I've seen, it's not the worst who I've seen. and. It got the essence of a good story. I think the fish people let it down. I remember seeing pictures of them as a kid and they kind of freaked me out and, uh, you know, yeah, not being able to see the eyes. Typical Who though, maybe that was the job to freak people out. I I would support this one. I don't think it's a good first date to show people Doctor Who, that's for sure. But I wouldn't rip it apart completely, but I think it's got to be watched. I think you've got to see the expressions, because otherwise, you think you think that Joseph First is just hamming it up, and of course he's hamming it up, but you can see he's really meaning it when you watch it on audio, it just it falls flat. You talk about it being first dates,
1: effectively this is our first date with Troughton, because these are the earliest surviving episodes mm. of the Troughton mm. era, which I think makes it especially interesting, so it's quite interesting. Yeah, just, the, um, seeing Troughton's dynamic and his performance.
3: Absolutely, and he's still finding his, you know, there's still feet finding in there. I mean, he's been doing it for a wee while. I think it's interesting that it's Jamie's first full adventure in the TARDIS, and he just seems to slot straight in. There's no kind of, you know, oh, you're finding your feet here. That's Jamie, and that's Jamie as he continues. There's, There's growth with Jamie, but yeah, great first episode for him. Well, not first episode. You know what I mean? First first, first TV First episode. episode.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean for me it's I think episode three is very poor. I think episode two is definitely better. Particularly as we do get to see things like um the Doctor and Zarov chatting. I mean there's all this stuff that um, when Zaroff is feeding his pet fish, for years people thought that was a pet octopus. He was talking about, ah, I doctor my pets and uh not quite what um we were expecting but uh yeah it's it's a very interesting one i think that he definitely gives an interesting performance i, mean, I think of him uh also as, i think it's dr metz in diamonds are forever he's uh, one of the one of the scientists in that and i'm sure the bluefield kills him but he's not quite as hammy in in that as he is in this but he's definitely Milking every line for its worth in a, a fairly heightened reality performance, I think would be a, a fair way of putting it. <laughs> That's, I'm being polite, John. What's your polite <laughs> take on it?
2: Well, a bit of me almost wants to see it as a comedy, and if you if you look for lighter moments and more comedic characterizations, then you'll find them a plenty. So, I think. For me, that's the way I would rather go with it because nothing else in it quite makes sense. Um, so as far as a plot that stands up is concerned, it's, sorry, cupboards spare. But uh, if you're looking for lots of rich, fruity characterisations and indeed stereotypes, one might say, Irish character, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I think it's actually probably a bit more successful that way. But I, I do, as I said, there are there are things about it when you when you see it after listening to the soundtrack you do realize that you know it's almost an impossible job to do justice visually to to anything the story required but in some respects they do quite a good job i mean the temple set is 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 great i think if you manage to look away from some of the the wires that the fish people are, are on you know the 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 underwater ballet again in all its glorious absurdity looks actually okay Um, in fact more than okay in in some respects I had to remind myself that this isn't underwater and if you were looking at it on a rubbishy 1960s telly in a small screen in black and white it would probably look look great I think so that for me is the you know those are the those are the best bits those kind of comedic elements and as you said before Trouton getting into his stride and having fun behind the shades yeah
1: yeah i definitely agree that what you're saying about the comedy because i think there are a lot of very funny moments in this and they are deliberately funny and they're they're playing up the the silliness of it in places and i think that is a good thing given that you've just had a a serious story in the highlanders where people are getting slaughtered so here you're going to something that's pretty much a diametric opposite Where you've got over-the-top ridiculous monsters does anybody remember that picture in dwm of the fish people it might even when it was doctor weekly where somebody had given them spot red coloring on their eyes and they looked ridiculous Ah, that's
3: ringing a bell something in the back of my brain did we not have them as well in an adventure in space and time or am i making that up did we not have a a, we had some didn't we i think i think there's a kind of a Minotra, yeah, Minotra, and uh, then them. I'm sure. Is it not one of the one of the
2: cutscenes? I can't remember. Yeah, there's something something about that rings a bell too. Yeah. yeah,
1: Stevie, what's your thoughts on the on the silliness of it?
3: Oh, well, silliness of it! I mean, I, you, who can't love um, is it Jacko and Sean? And then you know the, uh-huh.
4: the,
3: the, I mean, it worked. Actually, this worked better on audio with you know Jamie going back into a line trying to get picked to be sent away. I think the unintentional comedy is—it's obviously such a small cupboard that we're, I mean, set they were filming in. <laughs> so, you know, the camera angles are tight, the cameras are tight. So, you know, trying to spread people out um, becomes an, you know, an impossibility, and that adds to the, the tongue-in-cheek humor of it. I think it's a bit like watching faulty towers, watching the um, the walls wobble. You know, you just accept that's that's part of it yeah you know again unintentional humor you talked about the pet octopus and that's what it's described as in the audio so it's a bit of a shock to see little fishy swimming around there that brought a, a chuckle and the, the biggest chuckle for me knowing how small these sets were and knowing how hot these lights were the poor souls that were in the wetsuits as their costumes <laughs> i mean that that's got to raise a a chuckle. I mean, first of all, you had the guards, the general guards. Then you had uh, Ben and Jamie in wetsuits as well. I mean, that's that was just—you oh, could see the steam rising. That was um, funny.
1: I have a lot of friends who particularly enjoy those moments with Ben and Jamie in wetsuits, but <laughs> we <show laughs>
3: for completely different reasons. Completely to what I'm different describing. reasons.
1: Yep. But um, why don't we just pause for a wee second? Because we've got some guests to join us today. Ooh. And we're going to first of all welcome Anne-Marie Walsh, who is the producer of the animation. Anne-Marie doesn't do a lot of interviews and she's very kindly agreed to come on and have a chat with The Power of Three. So let's meet her.
4: Hi Kenny, thank you for taking the time to do this. My name is Anne-Marie Walsh and I am the director and producer of, well, a number of these Doctor Who animated series, The Underwater Menace being the most recent one that we've released I was also lucky enough to be given the opportunity to direct and animate um, and direct and produce either um, the evil of the Daleks and the Faceless ones and we also did a very short the Wheel space add-on which was added on to the macro of terror which I think was the first one I directed for them <laughs> very 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 small project with practically no budget but there we go so yeah really enjoyed working on the underwater menace we had the, um, the premiere at VFI on Saturday, October twenty first. I think it was well received. People were certainly very pleasant about it at the time, but I guess time will tell. So I think the um the DVDs are going out now, so a lot more of your audience will will get to view it very soon. So I'm looking forward to hearing what people think and I hope I hope they're happy with with how we've interpreted it and how we've presented it in the animated series.
1: Fantastic. Well I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've always seen the trailers and things at this point so I'm very excited because these animations are always a highlight of my year which means I probably <laughs> should get out more but uh, it's always nice to have these new ones. Please don't, please don't keep watching them. <laughs> oh I will do, I will do, I promise, I promise Cubs honour. There we go. <laughs> so maybe wind back the clock a bit and tell us how you first became involved in the, the field of animation.
4: Sure I started in, well many years ago I actually did a an evening course. It was actually a Saturday morning course in hand drawn animation in Dublin, in Ireland. Some of your listeners will have picked up. <laughs> I'm not from the UK. Um, I'm actually from Cork, in south of Ireland. So I did a hand drawn course on paper in um, animation in Dublin. Absolutely loved it from the first day, from the first time I started drawing with pencil and. After that, I was lucky enough to be accepted into a postgraduate course in the St. Martin's in London. I planned to spend about two years in London thinking I'll you know make a start on my career there and then move elsewhere. But spent 10 years in London. then spent maybe a year, year and a half in China, which is again a very interesting experience, especially in animation um, and seeing how animation studios work there and then came back to the UK after that and I'm currently based in Manchester which is really wonderful especially if you like the outdoors. So how did you first become involved
1: in the Doctor Who animations?
4: A few years ago I've moved up to Manchester to work in a studio here, it used to be um, Cosgrove Hall in fact so it had a very good reputation and um, I remember watching reruns of Count Ducula who was one of my favourites when I was a little kid and when I heard that Cosgrove Hall had reopened in some form, I was still in London at the time, I came up for a seven-month contract, and which was rolled on and moved on. So I worked for, with them for a while. And I had just decided to go back to freelancing again when I got a phone. A friend actually passed my number on to somebody um, who was looking to hire animators. And it was Charles Norton, who used to direct, um, who actually directed Power and a number of, he's been involved in the Doctor Who franchise for a long time. In fact, he still works on our team as consultant, and he um, is incredibly helpful when it comes to the BAM, the value added material, the extras on the DVDs and Blu-rays. He's incredibly knowledgeable about Doctor Who in all forms. So I worked as an animator on the team for the first, for, um which it was a Paracadolic, so I think it was Paracadolic, in fact. It was a crazy schedule, we had six weeks of animation, yeah it was it's quite different to how we're working now and uh, we did work in animation which was then called flash i think that's about the only similarity but yeah it was incredible the schedule he was trying to turn turn things around in. but i think it was one of their their early ones and they were still trying to figure out what they could actually do basically and then he asked me to come back on and work on Shada and invited me to work as the animation lead basically on it which was good and then getting an opportunity to direct the short, the wheel in space, or um which of that which was an add-on on the macro one, which was actually done in the studio in Bristol. And then I was invited to take over directing and using them. And I started with the faceless ones and then Eagle. And then I wonder which ones. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. So it sort of works my way up from animation basically.
1: I mean I find it fascinating to know that you're coming into this crazy Doctor Who world with an outsider's perspective and not the fan perspective. And I think that actually helps. I think it makes the fact that you can tell the story, perhaps your are interp- like a director would originally in terms of getting the designer and things like that. And you're coming in with that outsider's overview.
4: It is very different. I think, I think what's, what's great in our team is that, you know, a lot of the, the animators, compositors, storyboard artists, etc. they're all professionals. Most of them have worked in the industry for 20 years plus. But we also have a number of people who are very, very keen Doctor Who fans, and know it. they have encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of Doctor Who. It's really fascinating and amazing every time we're having chats. And some are friends now, and we just sit down having chats, and it's just crazy the amount of detail they they have <laughs> about the, about everything in the Doctor Who universe. But i think it's really really important that people like that are on the team as well and that we have that balance obviously we need professionals to do the work to a certain standard but it's it's critical that we have people who know doctor who and know what the fans like and know what's important to the fans and will tell me what's important and what I, if i get something wrong with all the items or if i miss something really important in so for instance the tardis has been changed in design numerous times and for various reasons, like when they had to make a slightly shorter one, so it fit in the, under a cave and various things like that. So it's so important to get the model right. So my first thing on every series is checking with Charles. Is this the right one? Or is this the time they changed black to white and white to black here? And they changed this side. And he was like, no, they used a slightly short, shorter one on the outside, but then when, when they shot inside, they used the bigger one again. And so every detail has to be checked. So yeah, so I think it's 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 really important to have a combination, and it's really great to get fan feedback as well and see what they like and don't like. And the underwater menace, it'd be interesting have a chat, having a touch after you've seen it, Kenny, because they really haven't shown much yet. I mean, they haven't they haven't released the actual trailer yet, which is a bit funny. Only the teasers come out, so you so the audience, unless you've been to the premiere,
5: so um, it wasn't.
4: Yeah, it's, very few people have seen much at all. It's quite different. Visually, so I know some people think that the animated series. There's a bit of a split. I think sometimes in the fan base about this. It's a bit controversial, maybe, that it should be a frame by frame remake of the original. The problem is, animation is a completely different media. It's a you can't make film in the same way. And also, we're working with Flash, and there isn't a budget to redraw every frame frame by frame. And it also wouldn't work. For instance, you can have alive characters like actors standing around and not really doing much and saying much as they would have in the 60s. That sort of editing style is popular. But you do that with with animated characters. And even if you have subtle things like links and shakes of heads and moves and weight shifts to keep them alive, it still just looks really odd. It doesn't flow in the same way. We have to edit it differently. And the type of shots you do in animation to make it work, to make it flow, and to make it Feasible, frankly, to animate. You don't want to have loads of full body shots with lots of people in them walking three quarters, perspective towards screen, up and down stairs all the time. Do a close-up, do a mid-shot to the person who's talking instead of having everyone in frame all the time. It makes a big difference in terms of, are we actually going to get the project done? You know, so there, there are loads of reasons. And on top of that, like for instance, The Underwater Menace, the first director who was supposed to do it, went through the script and said he couldn't do it, he didn't think it was feasible, and refused it. And then Julia Smith came on and she did it instead. They were working on shoestring budgets, we're working on shoestring budgets, but they didn't get to do it in the way they would have wanted to do it if they had a bigger budget. What I do is I go back to the camera script, we have the audio recordings, and we are we try to stay true to that. We take those basically as our source material, our original source material, which is what they would have had, except obviously they didn't have the audio recordings, but we stay true to that as well. That's an authentic source for me. And we make it from that. So in the camera scripts, they describe the temple as this huge cavernous space, the size and scale of which has never been seen. I'm paraphrasing here. And the, the goddess Amdo is a huge seated, terrifying figure with ruby eyes. Now, in the original, they didn't have a lot of money. They're shooting it in, in a tiny studio room to fit lots of people in. They've put in, it's very clever <laughs> technique actually. There's so many clever ways to pro- solve problems here. But they've put in lots of steps. You can have people standing on steps to make it look like a bigger room and put more people in. But it is a tiny space. And for the goddess Amdo, they've basically got a sort of large tinfoil mask ahead. But why not? Because we're drawing it. Why not draw a huge big temple? Why not draw a big seated figure of Amdu with scary ruby eyes? You know, why not have the big shark tank that they had imagined? We can do this because we're drawing it and we can draw something more scary and bigger and bigger scale. So we should do it, I think. I think we should do what they wanted us to do. We should take it from the script and we should make it I mean, we're reimagining it from the script. We're not trying to do a frame-by-frame remake, and I think if we tried to do a frame-by-frame remake, it would be a failure. I don't think it would work. Certainly, I don't think it would work very well. And we're lucky enough to, well, in some cases we have them in this, in some cases we make them from scratch, but we have um, which are an amazing resource, really. So people can watch telesnaps and, and get that sense of what the original would have been like if we don't have any existing episodes in The Underwater Menace. We're lucky to have two surviving episodes as it is. So people can have that authentic experience. But the animated series, it is it's a different medium. And you have to make it work for that medium. So as I say, we go from camera's books and we use the original audio and we make something new of the story. So <laughs> people like what we've made of it.
1: I'm. Sorry, I do prefer the sort of the reimaginings because the telly snaps are there. We can watch those, so we can get the interpretation of how it originally was, and I enjoy the the reimaginings and how things have gone. So that's just me. Obviously, other opinions may vary. Those yeah, opinions no, are I reckon, wrong. I should point out, but
4: uh, <laughs> clearly we're on the same page, so we must be right. That's two people. <laughs> absolutely. Um, it'll be interesting to hear what people yeah. think, but I hope I hope they feel we've done it justice. We've done our best to. Be you know, try to be authentic and try to realize what we thought they wanted from the camera script.
1: Yeah, I'm told from those who've been there that you've definitely brought the humor out in the this new animated definitely version.
4: Into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Zarek was such an amazing character, and he's um, just for us. Just he really kind of, it's almost Hammy, like really goes for it when he plays up that character. So at every opportunity, and, and not just with his character, but where there is opportunity elsewhere in the scripts and with the voices if they lend themselves to it, we do, because I think I think it's, I mean, I think it's a funny story, essentially I think it's supposed to be a little bit funny so, yeah, we definitely push the humour where we can
1: Yeah, because I particularly enjoy the fact that you've gone from the preceding story, the Highlanders where there's, you're going from hundreds, thousands of Scottish people being massacred, and uh, then you're going on to something that's just ridiculous and fun. And that's what I wonder, I I love that, the fact you've gone, that complete change of tone.
4: Yeah, well, The Highlanders are such a, I mean, to do that one, it's such a serious thing. There's so much brutal history and everything behind it. It's really one you'd have to sit down and think about how you're going to handle it carefully and and sensitivity. But yeah, this one was clearly, you can kind of go for it. And I think that's also why I felt it'll be a fun one to do after Evil of the Daleks, because Evil of the Daleks was one. I knew we would have to have everything spot on and match the original in terms of the set, because Grimsdyke still exists and the some of the fans who have been to the now hotel and all of that. So in terms of the stories that we had done as well, Evil of the Daleks is one that we were very like, let's be as true to the original as much as we could because there was so much reference material and I felt hard to ignore it. Yeah. And Evil Up the Alex is such an important story for people. And it is an important story. This just felt like, you know what, let's, let's have fun with it. It's a fun story. It's a silly story. It was always, I mean, if you start following the plot, there are definitely holes in it. So I think it's one not to take too seriously and have fun with it. And we definitely creatively pushed the boat out. In a way that we haven't as much with the other ones, and um, push the colour palette and things like that, created two different worlds within the world without giving too much away. But yeah, so it will be interesting to hear the the, the feedback from it.
1: Yeah,
4: I mean, there's one I'm, we could be a bit more experimental. With, I think.
1: I would imagine that you must get a real thrill when the first completed scenes come through and you can say, you can sign them off and say, "There we go, that's that's us. We've got that one locked." Next.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And we had um, Rick Kana, who um, head compositor. He has a, a small company called Alpine Limited, and um, also based here in Manchester and Stockport. He did a fantastic job with the compositing. And like just there's there's one early scene where the the characters are walking along a corridor, and there's this really cool interplay and torches which are i think they're covered by columns you don't really see them but you get the torchlight casting shadows and the interplay of shadows cast by the characters crossing over each other as they're walking along with the interplay of the torchlight they bring it's so subtle but there's so much richness and depth to the scene and that's just his work on top of the um location designer, and background designer fran johnston Spent so we both spent so much time, but we spent so much time like playing with the different background designs that we we're going to for the temple scene. So the the Atlanteans' world, pulling in elements of tribalism, the fact that they've been underwater and cut off from other civilizations for thousands of years, and created one world for them and a separate world for Zaroff and his labs and each operating theaters, um, which are, are different but li- live within the same bubble essentially. But all the different elements and textures within the walls and all of this with this light interplay. It's it's a tiny, tiny short scene, but even that scene when I first saw that come through, I was like, worked beautifully. So yeah. It'll it'll be really interesting to hear the feedback. I think everybody who's worked on it has gone way far and beyond what was required of them and have worked incredibly hard on it. So I really hope the fans like it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's the thing that people people who stand back and can appreciate what you've done, and because it's not an easy process. Because I mean, how long was it from pretty much from day one until the final sign-off, delivering the final assets that were you know all approved, ready to go.
4: Fifteen weeks.
1: For four episodes.
4: That's wow. Twenty-five minutes per episode, so a hundred minutes, yeah, and lots of extras. So. We've got telesnaps two existing episodes which have been fully restored by the fabulous Mr. Peter Crocker. Mark Harris has restored the sound, obviously, throughout. And then there are a number of additional extras which I'll leave the fans to discover. interviews and, and Man with Mips and lots of extras. But yes, there's yeah, a lot in it and it's a very, very good turnaround time. But a big part of what makes it work, um, I think, is the fact that I'm lucky enough to worked with a very small group, really, of very, very talented artists who were happy to come back and work with uh, with me again, basically. So it's kind of the same team of people who, who do all of these that I've been involved in. Obviously, there are two different teams of people doing doing these animated series, but the ones that I do with um, with Martin Gertie who does our character design, we pretty much have almost the same team of animators who kind of range between six and seven animators one main compositor who sometimes has an assistant or two helping him and um, setting up files and things but it's usually one person that does most of the work one sometimes two but usually one <laughs> background uh, artist sometimes a few people will come in to help with some extra shots when we're under pressure to finish things off it's usually one main person so it's you know it's everybody gets to take ownership in that case it's not about like sending stuff off and you don't really know who's doing what it's everybody gets to put their own creative stamp on something they can sort of take control of can I try this and I you know I have a very much say we should all get a chance to try stuff if it works brilliantly if it doesn't work it doesn't work and take it out but yeah try something see if it works if it works with what everyone else is doing obviously the whole project needs to be harmonious it all needs to fit together well but yeah I'm incredibly lucky with the people I work with that's what makes it work and that's what makes it possible to turn them around in this sort of time as well. Because if the same the group of people weren't happy to come back and Paul the Storyboard Artists worked on every single one. If, if people like that were to say, no, I'm not free. And if a few of those key people weren't free to do them, then it would take a lot, lot longer because you'd start again, like the person starting again, where you're trying to crew people up, get them into the kind of style we work on, like the characters are quite complex characters. Quite difficult to work with until you've got used to a certain way of working not just anyone can sort of pick this up off the bat and work with it and they're quite you know they are quite niche projects as well so for storyboarding as well trying to explain to storyboard artist how we board them and working with this old old audio rather than you know storyboarding first animation and you know storyboarding first and then doing the recording which is the normal process we're doing it the other way around like all of this it is quite a special (laughs) kind of thing because it's such a special project so the main thing it's all down to the team it's it's down to having a small team who are quite well-knit everybody kind of knows each other how they work they work very very well together and they're just all like I say I'm incredibly lucky they're all really awesome and we couldn't really turn it around in the time we do it and certainly not to the level that we're doing them man. I mean the animation is definitely better this time than you know than the previous projects we've done. Every single project we've done it's been the output is better, the quality is better because it's getting more and more streamlined. We're improving the drawings, the skills, the, the rigs, the animation every time we're doing something to improve it because we're learning from what we've done before and we're figuring out ways to make it a little bit better just tweaking little things each time so yeah. What I mm-hmm. really
1: love is the passion you speak about it. The fact, you know, you're talking about Professor Zarov and describing the character. and For somebody who's not a Doctor Who fan, the passion that you have for your work and how you've emotionally involved you've become with it is really, oh, really making me smile.
4: You can't but I mean, when I say I'm not a Doctor Who fan, I'm saying that within the context of Doctor Who fans because I feel like to say that I'm a Doctor Who fan is to misrepresent my, my knowledge in this area because I'm aware of those who are truly knowledgeable. But since I started working in these, I don't think it's possible to not develop a real soft spot for, especially the characters you've worked for, like, Troutman is an amazing, eccentric, cool character to work for. I love, I love that character. And I mean, the animators as well, you can see it in, you know, we will go through the sort of gestures and poses he pulls, which he's learned a lot from Hartnell, like he adopted that kind of this, these poses with the holding the lapels and the all these different poses from Hartnell to, to make it credible that he's being regenerated and it's fun but he's very much made it his own character like he's he's very much an eccentric fun doctor versus Hartman who's a much more serious character I just think he's brilliant and yeah with all the characters I think you kind of develop a relationship with them the more you work with them and especially with the bigger characters then you, you get to really love them like the the commandant in them um, this one's still one of the best characters I've ever worked with and it's years ago now but still like every, every time some one of the animators got him they were like yes she's great. see the voice was just fabulous. Um, so I think it's it comes down to the it's funny working with voices from the 1960s and you're still like, what a brilliant actor listening to this voice or yeah it's so it's it's lovely actually bringing them back to life in another form and giving them a chance to act again.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for all that you do, and please do, carrying on, bringing all these wonderful characters back to life for a long, long time still to come.
4: It's a privilege and a joy. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Kenny.
1: Many thanks to Anne-Marie taking the time to have a chat with us. She doesn't do many podcasts, so we appreciate her taking time to have a chat with The Power of Three. And now we're going to have a quick word with somebody Anne-Marie just mentioned, Martin Geraghty.
6: Well, I'm Martin Gerry and I did the character design on the animated reconstruction, which has come out this week, I think. Released this week, yeah. Yeah. So it's out in the wild. Yes. So <laughs> starting not long after um I think the ink on Evil of the Daleks was still wet when Anne Marie gave me a ring and said, You know, what do you think about another one? And she always sort of sounds us out and says what's a good one to do you know because <laughs> she doesn't she she knows she's she's a Doctor Who fan now by default because of her, all the work she's she's done on them but uh, there's certain stories especially the 60s stuff that um she, she'd like a bit of advice on and what we think is achievable and what have you because these things we're all done on a budget and not to the greatest amount of her time and I think to be honest she mentioned Underwater Mellis and I thought it was I thought it was risky because it's not a small cast. There's a lot of characters in it. And it's it's big, really. The, the ideas are big. The audio is big. What we got on screen, due to limitations of the production and I think it having to be done on the hoof, as it were, uh, doesn't match up to the, obviously, what was being attempted. But, yeah, that was the one that was chosen. We we knuckled down to it. So uh, probably about a year and a half ago, I think I I got the call. I think I you know you forget because as soon as I'd finished this, I went straight onto Dad's Army then. So and that seemed like I was doing Dad's Army for ages. and I think I only started it in March, just gone. So um, yeah, you lose all sense of time, and especially if you're working on you on your own in a studio. You know, you start work at eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning doing the character design, and before you know it, it's Six o'clock in the evening, and you barely moved. It's crazy, yeah. So yes, that's how we got. That's how I got involved in the underwater menace. So I would imagine that you're know, having
1: worked previously on your stories like Evil Vodales, and um, that means you've already got sort of like your basic and elements together. Or would you do new ones <clears> from scratch?
6: Well, actually, I didn't. The one, the trout and the Jamie that have been used since i think they would do used they were, they were brought in in evil of the daleks weren't done by me they were done by another animator because we were finding the rigs weren't moving properly so while i was doing the subsidiary characters in evil of the daleks can't remember which chap it was uh, but he was one of the team working on evil of the daleks anyway and he redid the doctor and jamie to free me up to do the other guys so yeah, it's we do have them now. Anyway, yeah, we have his um, designs on file. And the only thing I'll <clears throat> I'll do is, I mean, they're used for if the doctor's ex- stood, stood up explaining something to Maxtable or whatever. Um, they're used for that for those kind of scenes. But you ever see a scene where the doctor's unconscious or he's uh, kneeling down or he's doing something specific, a, a quite specific pose that he needs to be almost crowbarred into with the original rigs, So I'll I'll do the uh, these specific poses, and then they put the animated head, I draw it so that, you know, it's a three-quarter angle, so they can still use the existing model head. So, yeah, uh, in terms of that, I mean, all the other characters, yes, are, are done by me, I think, yeah.
1: Yes, yes, just those two. Fantastic. So we've got Professor Zaroff, a character who's fantastic features all there pretty much ready to be caricatured and put into an animated drawn form does that give you quite a lot of freedom the fact that you've got this wonderful face and you're so expressive
6: and then how many versions will you create of him oh yeah he was brilliant to do um anton anton first the actor yeah because he's the two episodes that we've got he just He's giving it both barrels, isn't he, all the way through. It's just, he doesn't hold back. So it's really fun. I had him, I was already aware of the actor he was in uh, the first episode of Callum, I think. So I had good reference of him in that. And he's also in Diamonds Are Forever. He's, a, he's in a Bond, he's in a late Connery Bond film. I think it's Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, I, uh, I was able to use those. The problem about halfway through I found was that... Um, my laptop blew up that i was using and i got i had to get a new one like overnight well literally within hours the entire, the battery just blew up and as i was typing on the keyboard the thing the thing lifted <laughs> the whole the whole deck lifted up and i was like oh my god i was like adric pressing that thing at the end of the shop nobody knows it's going to blow up so i was like well i'm not touching that again so i then had to go and get literally get a. Uh, you know, a reconstituted uh, laptop from a local guy pretty much, you know, within the within three hours in you know, order to carry on getting work done. And lo and behold, they don't have a DVD slot in them anymore. So with my old laptop, where i just put a DVD on of, of Callan and take screen grabs of Anton First in order to trace over them on my lightbox, couldn't do that now because I wasn't able to access the... Um, the footage, so I was kind of like having to do pausing, pausing the yeah at me whatever downstairs, my video downstairs, taking screenshots of it off my phone. I know. Well, that's it.
1: <laughs> I bought an external DB drive for like twenty quid off Amazon.
6: Right. So I need to get one of them because the one thing that's uh, that's put me off is that you can't see here, but there's that many things plugged in. Yeah. To my laptop, I've got I've got an external hard drive. I've got my Wacom tablet, uh, mm-hmm. which is what I draw on. Uh, afterwards, I, I draw traditionally, but I use the Wacom tablet for cleaning up uh, after I've scanned them in. I've got a light box I usually have a big pile of reference material, and there's barely a square inch of space left. So I'm just wondering, if I ever got one of those, where I put it? <laughs> Probably have to lash something up and have it you know suspended from the light over my desk yeah but it's annoying that they've made my job It's in, in order to make their technology more streamlined and better they've made my job harder but you know we got it done
1: <laughs> so, Artem please well, yes, don't I take it personally
6: <laughs> no probably not
1: yeah so I imagine also that you've got a lot of creative freedom given that this isn't following slavishly to the original TV, where you're able to sort of create different looks for characters and do different sort of fish people, that sort of thing.
6: Well, only really with this story, I think the team, and I think the the BBC as well, were really keen to push against the edges of it. And also because some of the character designs in the original... That kind of seeing enemy hats that the um, the priests wear would have been really difficult to animate and draw and have been really time consuming so I was brought in to the well I joined the team I was you know I'd been hired and was, I had the job but I was just finishing another job on, off so I was having to I came onto the the job slightly later than I would normally and I saw some of the background designs that were going up um, on the file share and I thought wow well these aren't anything like the BB, you know Lime Grove Studios or whatever wherever it was he filmed them they've really sort of gone all out it and you know Temple of Amdo was huge and totally different to what we saw on screen so that kind of gave me a bit of carte blanche to change the d- designs a bit and uh, well probably quite a lot in the end. And I was thinking along the lines of, say, the guards, you know, having helmets made of, you know, gaping fish mouths and the the arms of, the, the kind of gauntlets on their arms or the tails of lobsters, you know, that kind of thing. Not literally the tails of lobsters, but based on the tails of lobsters. A lot of netting on things because they'd find nets washed up and what have you. So it's, and con shells for hats. Big conch shells, and Anne-Marie had sent over like massive mood boards of things she'd found. Different types of fish, different um, kind of marine biology, colours, even um, some kind of weird sci-fi films from the '60s that we we used in in the kind of tone of what what we were aiming for. So yeah. I was—I did feel far freer to do more on this story than I did on the Faceless Ones and Evil of the Daleks, which essentially had been nearly three years of drawing men in suits, because you know you can't—you know—you've got Gatwick and you've got you know a Victorian house, really. So yeah, it was nice to sort of go out a bit more and be a bit more freer with things. But we also got into thinking about these chaps who are running around in the. In the rubber outfits, so they were obviously Zaroff's personal guard. So we kind of—they weren't Atlanteans, as far as we could make out. So we did, made a design choice that they would be like his private militia. who would come with him, you know, to make a few hundred grand by working for him and push the Bond villain feel of him a bit further than it comes across in the in the show. Because it's really odd that you know he's he's in Atlantis working for these Atlanteans who seem to be really primitive, you know, uh, and, these, and they've also got labs and things like that. It's it's just a weird kind of hodgepodge of ideas that it's it is crazy. But so we tried to make some kind of design sense of it in a way and have fun at the same time. And happily, Anne-Marie was completely on board with that. She was pushing for it. So, you know, it's. Um, I know that there's an argument that we want to keep these as close to the originals as possible, but I think with this, we just wanted to have fun, and because it's not a usually regarded classic, we just thought this was one story we could have a go at in terms of that. Did you get to be able like to see the premiere of it? No, I didn't. I'm not really travelling uh, that much at the minute, so I didn't make it down. Uh, I've seen bits on YouTube... Uh, where people have filmed the Q and A and all that, so that was fun <laughs> to watch that. But the uh, the response that I saw I saw online was, I mean, I might not I might be look, just looking in the wrong places, but it seems to be mostly positive, for which I'm always uh, grateful for, because it's such a thrill to do these things. Being a Doctor Who fan, you don't want to alienate your audience, but at the same time, you want to maybe also make it fun for, you know, I've, I've seen. Uh, people online saying their eight-year-old kid came in and sat down and started watching it and you just think well would they have watched an old faithfully reproduced black and white version of it so there's that argument to be had so it's, it, it, there's a line to be trodden and um, hopefully we we got it right and just, just made it a, f- a fun bit of escapism for an hour and a half. Fantastic Martin, thank you very much Okay, thank you
1: and thanks to Martin as well, Stevie. You've got your hand up.
3: Can I can I also mention another humorous bit again from the audio? We've got Zaroff, you know, killing. Oh, I'm not good. At this is a damon he kills, and in the book, you know, he starts off with a spear and then he finishes off with a sword. In the visual, we see him getting stabbed with a spear, which then wiggles gently. <laughs> it's like, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. I reckon he's in his death throes and he thinks, oh, I'm going to get this good acting here and it's just gently wiggling, gently wiggling. <laughs> it's worth going back for. And then, of course, and you can see where it all went, went wrong between the, the um, episodes going missing and the audio being made. Zaraf has a sword and he's wandering uh-huh. around with that. And the next thing didn't have a sword initially, uh, you know, because he stabbed him with a spear. Gotta love this! Oh, good old continuity. Let, let's let's yeah. have a chat about
1: the performances. As um, there's some very interesting ones in this. Uh, obviously, we've mentioned Joseph first. John, what's your thoughts?
2: I think there's a lot of um, frantic eyebrow acting going on from the and I've forgotten his name again, having looked it up. The uh, the Doctor um, character, not Doctor Who. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to Damon. Uh, yeah, it's good to see someone who became pretty much a fixture of, of my childhood acting in other roles.
1: Oh yes, Colin Jeevens, who was later in Canine and Company.
2: So uh, he delivers a, a, a good performance, I think. But apart from that, I think, you know, there's a quite a bit of amdram going on with some of the lesser roles. There's that bit where the 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 priest and the doctor are having their kind of conference and there's this figure just standing about in the background. Obviously spying on them, but it's not really followed up. Uh, and so I thought, mm, no. So I think the regulars are doing a good job for the most part. Polly's a bit, a bit whiny, but as, as Stevie was saying, um, it's a very solid and continuous performance from from Fraser Hines as as, as Jamie. I think he does though, tone down the the, the accent. Uh, as as he goes on, it's yeah. it's pretty broad and and yeah, a, a bit too thick. One. Lilt. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that kind of settles down o- o- over the remaining episodes. So no, I thought I thought it was I thought it was good, and I, I thought while there's no rationale for any of Zaroff's actions, you do see in the performance a hint of a believability of someone who is just basically who has gone mad for for whatever reason. So I think he plays a madman very well who wants to burn the world.
1: Yep. Before we started, we referred to a a certain British actor. When we're talking about the part of Lollum, the priest who's played by Peter Stevens, who of course we will all remember from Cyril the schoolboy in The Celestial Toymaker. But what a camp performance we could say,
3: because at first I almost (laughs) thought, is this a Young Biggins? That's exactly what I thought. I had to go back and make sure it wasn't a young Biggins because it, it that was just, just the looks and the the inflection and the change of the words. That's a part made for Biggins. Have has Biggins been in Who? No, I don't think so. He's done the One
1: Doctor for Big Finish, where he plays uh-huh. a version of the of the sixth Doctor. And I would highly recommend right. it. We did a Christmas episode on it a couple of years ago. And uh, I would definitely recommend it. It's it's really good fun very good fun where biggins effectively is playing the doctor but dot 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 299 from www.bigfinish.com i would recommend it as a good festive listen
3: i think we should start a wee campaign to get biggins into a cameo
6: yeah
3: in doctor who i think i think that's missing from his cv i would agree with you it wasn't biggins but oh it could have so been so been him yeah,
1: I think basically what we're all seeing here is that biggins are best. Anyway, oh, moving swiftly yeah. on. Yeah. Also, Noel Johnson as King faust quite a, an interesting performance. It's, he's sort of playing it, but it's very much, I don't know, it's a very strange performance. I didn't feel that I got to know the character at all. It's sort of just like he's there and he's saying the words, mm-hmm. but there's not much you know, of an authority to him. He's maybe almost too deferential to Zaroff.
3: To Zaroff, yeah. It was a bit, a bit, have either of you seen, I don't know what it would be, 1970s, sort of the BBC Shakespeare adaptations, you know, Julius Caesar, that kind of thing. It's, it's a wee bit, the whole thing is a wee bit that in places, but his performances especially. I've decided on the character and this is what you're getting. You don't need any explanations. Just let's let's run with it. Bit odd. Nothing wrong with the performance, but again, maybe maybe this stuff is a wee bit disjointed amongst them all. And I should say that it was it was Ramo that uh, that the spear was impaled in, not not uh, Damon. But I mean, I, I like I liked most of the performances. The guards. It's like any red jerseyed guard, really, or red wetsuited guard. They don't have a lot to do. There's not a lot of character development in there. I think that um, Ara, the girl who played quite a pivotal part in the whole thing, yep. I think she she pulled all that off really well. And and, and those those girls' costumes, with the head pieces, uh, they they were really 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 good. They were a little bit better than the kind of plastic foamy bendy things yeah. that some of
2: the others. The rest were. of the headgear is absolutely bonkers. And I think that's been toned down in the animation as far as i can tell and the guards as well i think they've had a makeover and i think that would probably help the credibility of 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 the story and and dial down a lot of the silliness because it's hard to be taken seriously when you're wearing an explosion in a fuzzy felt and pipe cleaner factory but
3: well Um, that as you go yeah yeah um what year is this set in because i was a bit confused about that there's a throwaway line in the audio oh it must be 1970 something because of a bracelet
1: yeah I... there was something from the olympics in mexico i think it was 1968 was mexico something like that right. and there was the so they knew it was set after then so i think that's the mm. the clue so, so sort of, i imagine just... it's
3: early 70s so we're just discounting a, a meddling monk or whatever who just capped to drop that. This is the evidential proof that this is 1968, there's a bracelet that they've just happened to find. That was a bit weird, That's accepting that. It's odd. But you're, the weird thing that,
1: oh well, it's not a weird thing, the thing that I always found quite interesting from looking at the telesnaps is that when they arrive on the surface of Atlantis, there's like two huge caves in front of them sort of like squarish shapes and it's exactly the same location that features in Destiny of the Daleks in season 17 so it's the same, so we can get a good idea as to what uh, the surface of Atlantis would have looked like so it's a quarry basically And oh, uh, but, but but which Atlantis Kenny,
3: how many have yes. visited or, is, or is that a, a present we don't want to open
1: we'll yeah. not go down that, uh, that tunnel of discussion because we could be there all day discussing these things obviously the demons and the time monster would uh, add their own thoughts to that one but uh, why don't we pause again because it's time for our second guest as usually when we have a chat about these older stories we like to get Peter Crocker on to tell us about restoring the pictures so he's going to tell us about restoring the films and a bit of work in the animations. Mm
5: My name is Peter Crocker. I'm, I do the picture restoration and a few of the bits and bobs on the, uh, the uh, Blu-ray collection and animation ranges. So, the Underwater
1: Menace. It's been a few years since you last had to work in that one. So, was there quite a lot to do this time around? Yeah,
5: not, not that not that many years. I, I, was, I was looking at the at the moment. One of the things I'm doing is with a, with a view to um, machines not being available forever in good condition. Uh, I've been archiving the um, all of the old dig- digital beta cam tapes in in my archive to uh, to computer LTO tape, which which when I after I'm long gone, other people will then be able to access if not easily at least reliably. Um, and is one of the, was one of the ones that I was digitizing and I think the last time I did it was 2015 according to the files. so it's not that long ago. A bit changed since then, but not a massive amount. The, I think the um, the main thing that people might have been hoping is that we'd get new scans done for the original episodes to go on with the animation. But um, but realistically, the, there was never going to be the the funds available to do that. It's not that expensive, actually. I mean, the the, the cost of scanning a 16 millimeter film and the subsequent restoration is pretty minuscule, actually, compared with the the costs and you know the, the, the expense and difficulty of, of animating four episodes from scratch but that budget is you know, as, as people will be aware with a, a lot of the sort of you know rumors and fears and, and hopes over the last few years it's sufficiently expensive that it's hard to uh, for the for, to make a business case for it and they have to make you know make the money back so you know every um, every few hundred pounds or um it really does make a difference so what that means <laughs> to cut to the chase is that while while we have uh, recently got a, a new scan of the 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 rather the rather damaged and uh, damaged strong word the worn and and cut episode two that terry burnett had uh, we have got a nice uh, new 2k scan of that to work from when the time comes for, for this because the existing episodes are very much added value material that's extras in old money to the to the animation um what we've got for this is just a little sort of extra beauty pass with the restoration a little bit of cleanup a little bit more work on all the tramline scratching and and dirt but people i doubt will see a massive improvement in quality over and above the dvd other than the fact that it's on Blu-ray, so the codecs are a little bit more forgiving of the old old material, so it might lo- it might look better, but I can't claim that's an awful lot to do with me. It's only only a little tickle from me, but people will, I think, notice a significant improvement in the sound because obviously Mark has reused the the new full restoration of the sound that he's done to go with the animation for the um, for the original episodes and and also for the telesnap reconstruction.
1: Fantastic! Now, of course. You'd have been involved with the restoration or the completion I should say of episode two back in the day with re- reuniting the censor clips with what yeah. was returned by Terry. That must have been quite exciting at the time to sort of think here we go, we're actually putting it back together the way that it was originally meant to be. Yeah, it was quite
5: it was quite funny actually. Because we, we couldn't uh, we couldn't actually access the bits of film. It would in a way it would have been nice if we could. It would have been nice if the Australian Archives, who held them, were to have said, "Well, look, you know, we don't normally do this, uh, but we'll make an exception because it's an exceptional case, and we'll we'll send the original bits of film back to you so that you can actually physically splice them back in and make the original print complete as it was." But to be honest, I don't think it's um, I, I don't think it matters that much. We got uh, we got them scanned in Sydney. At 2K resolution, which at the time was was better than we have for the DVD. At the time when it was first borrowed, it was we only scanned it on the Spirit telecine. Obviously, It wasn't it, we transferred on the Spirit telecine, um, As with all of the old black and white doctor Who's, in standard definition. So, so we had the the centre clips in 2K, but the actual print in standard definition. And having them in 2K really helped um, when it came to slotting them in seamlessly. Because it gave it gave me more latitude to uh, rotate them, which I had to do a little bit, and uh, resize and alter the geometry to match the standard definition transfer, as you know, as invisibly as we could. And I, I think I think it, the, I think they did go in quite invisibly in the end, and. Where they'd been cut out, there was generally... There was mostly one frame, I think, you know, a couple of times. Um, there might have been a couple of frames, but certainly no more than that, uh, missing. And when there isn't a massive amount of complex motion going on, that's very, very easy to, to interpolate and sort of patch between. So, so it was nice for it to go back in, and it wasn't actually that difficult to do in the end. I think the hardest, uh, the hardest thing to match was the... Um, the difference in how the grain had been handled um, on the transfers because the, the SD transfer that Jonathan Wood had done on the BBC had had digital noise reduction applied. Only, only a small amount, but it, it tends to kill quite a bit of the grain which that can be on this old, the old film stock. Uh, whereas the scan from Australia was just a straight, raw scan of completely ungraded of the film grain and all. So, um, so I had to apply, a, you know, an awful lot of grain reduction to um, to that to make it match. And then at the end, you put a you put a bit of sort of I was going to say fake grain. It's not fake grain. It's actually grain taken from a piece of film that that has basically nothing on it. You you, you know you've, you you film a, a black screen and uh, but that's lit, and you end up with just grain on the film, which you can then sample and overlay. In, at, a, at a particular uh, opacity, and you can you can adjust the contrast of it to to make it uh, pop more or less. And with a bit of work, you can usually make it match the the look of the the grain that was originally there. But but what's nice is that it's it goes over everything, so it it sort of smooths over the joins a bit and makes it uh, makes it less obvious as it's come from two di- well, I say two disparate sources. they they're de- disparate in terms of geography, but. <laughs> Because they did originally come from the same print. I suppose
1: that's one of the joys of it—you get to do this, and then you actually get you—you you get to be the first person to see it complete since possibly original transmission.
5: Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've, I've never really thought about that, to be honest. I think once you're into the once you're into it into the job, thoughts like that just tend not to occur. It's it's a bit of you know it's a bit of a curse, to be honest. I you know I think back to when we first saw Enemy of the World. And the web of fear when they were being transferred, and I mean I do I do have memories of watching the web of fear from the time. I don't particularly remember much of the Enemy of the World, but I think that's probably because at the age of four, Yetis make more of an impression on you than sort of talky, politicky sort of dramas like Enemy of the World. But you know, watching both of those, you know, for the first time in you know since 1968. And essentially, for the first time, really, in terms of you know being able to watch it as an adult, I you know I was just watching, I was just watching for the um, the technical problems that I was going to have to fix. It's, it's a curse in a way. I mean, you know, obviously that very um, I was very very fortunate to be in a position to actually you know sit there and be one of the first people to to watch them because even Phil Morris hadn't hadn't watched them. You know, it, it, you know they just left in the cans. Uh, so we, we were the first people to see them since whenever they were last broadcast in Nigeria. Uh, yeah, 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 I enjoyed it, but it was very much tempered by thinking, oh blimey, what am I going to do there? How am I going to sort those out? those you know, scratches out and, and that's that's, that's, a, that's a nasty off-lock that's going to take some fixing and things like that.
1: That's where the professional head overtakes the fan head. It's quite fascinating.
5: Totally. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it does. It does, unfortunately. But, there we go it's life
1: yeah so quite happy with these episodes this is probably the best we'll get to see them now
5: oh no i know i think no i think they'll you know um really they are necessarily limited by the technology of we did the um, the transfers particularly Terry Burnett's film in 2011 was the transfer in 2011 i think it probably was yeah so you know, time marches on, and you know it's, you know, it's now twelve years since that film was was transferred on the and Also, episode three—that's the last time episode three—the neck of that was was transferred. So, so they were state of the art, best that could be done transfers for for the time. But things have moved on, and particularly uh, DVNR noise reduction that was uh, done as standard back then and throughout the DVD range. That's. Pretty much outdated now. It was uh, very heavy, really, on what's called what's called temporal noise reduction, which relies on the difference in the noise, you know, grain or video noise between one frame and the next, or the previous and the next. And and that you know that's fantastic on bright lit shots, but and, and where there isn't a massive amount of movement. But the more movement there is, and also the darker. Uh, the scene is, uh, the more you tend to get unwanted effects of um, uh, s- smoothing smoothing over and blurring one frame into the next and losing detail. So, and it's always this balance between, you know, how much noise do you want to get and how much detail do you want to keep? Because noise and detail are to a large extent indistingu- indistinguishable. So, uh, but the, the, uh, the modern um, sort of, you know, computing power And algorithms that are available to us now mean that we can actually do much more to tame noise and film grain, without uh, without sort of blurring one frame into the next. So, you know, by taking, by getting, if we get new scans of things, um, we can generally make them look, you know, rather sharper and, and cleaner than than they were before. But we can't afford to do that, and everything we can't, you know, with, with the black and white. It would be lovely to be able to go back and get two K scans and do restorations from scratch for all of them, but that's just not going to happen because not only not only wouldn't there be the budget for you know to do that. Not that it's again, not, it's not that expensive, but the trouble is there's a lot of episodes, so um, so a, a, a modest a modest cost soon you multiply that by a hundred and it still becomes a, bit, a very large cost. So so whenever we get to the black and white seasons uh, inevitably there'll probably be you know a couple or maybe at the most three stories out of each set that um, we have the luxury of going doing them from scratch um, and the rest will be uh, reworks of what we did for the DVDs which will still look great I think but you know, we have to be realistic about how we approach it
1: Fantastic, well roll on season 4 on Blu-ray in the future not asking you if that's something you're working on not at all, moving swiftly on you were saying before we started that you've been, you also do a bit of work on the animations as well to prepare them for the final release.
5: Yes, yes, that's right. It's, uh, it's, it's. I don't work on all of the animations. It tends to be just with the team um, led by Annarie Walsh, but she's um, she's a, a sort of a nearish neighbour of mine. We walk our dogs together from time to time, and. I'm a handy pair of extra eyes um, on the releases because I've not seen them before anything that leaps out I can feed back and say well you know is this supposed to be like this um, usually you know it will be too late to fix anything anyway but so sometimes it's something as, as simple as a, uh, a, a mask um, some masking on the animation has has gone slightly wrong and someone's arm or leg might disappear just for one frame at the end of a shot and if that's the case then i can just fix it very easily without even having to go back and uh, get it resupplied so do that sort of thing i also check that the the files that are supplied to the authoring house meet the technical requirement which is which is very tedious but is important and um and, I, uh, and that includes laying back the uh, restored audio that Marques sends and any commentaries that are supplied in, in, into the deliverable, final deliverable file. And I also check the colors for, uh, for, um, for being legal. It's something that not too many people know about or need to know about, but the, there are certain colors which you can produce on a computer. And uh, once you try and show them on a, uh, on a television as opposed to a computer monitor it falls outside of what the legal video signal is and that color can be reproduced inaccurately It sometimes gets a solarization type effects or you know, some, you know the color is just reproduced completely wrong because it's misinterpreted so um uh, so i make sure that everything is all legal which, which it all is now the last time I found something that I had to fix was the faceless ones. But since then, it's been absolutely fine. And I also I also do the um, pan and scan to make the 4x3 black and white version that that people often will choose to watch if they're... Well, I hope they watch all four episodes in black and white because I think they actually work quite well that way. But if people do want to mix and match with the original episodes in black and white, the animators, I think, I think quite rightly, don't pay a massive amount of, don't give a lot of thought to how well it would work in four by three because I think that would limit what they're trying to do in the um, in the widescreen animation. But it uh, it does make it sometimes a challenging job, particularly if you've got a, a wide shot with maybe a few people in it, and you've got someone on the on the far left of the picture and someone on the far right of the picture talking to each other in one shot and if, if if you try to do a center cutout, either you wouldn't see them at all or you just have two noses and some lips talking at each other with people in the middle who aren't saying anything at all so that has to be handled and quite often as they in the same way that when white movies had to be panned and scanned for television in the, in the olden days when everyone had four by three tvs you know uh, sometimes the uh, it has to be done sort of dynamically so While quite a lot of the shots, you can just find a nice central position and and just leave it for the entirety of the shot. Sometimes the scene goes on and people move and um, you have to chase it around and you have to sort of follow them in such a way that it doesn't, it's not obvious that you've actually done anything. falls into the category of being like, uh, like special effects. If people notice them, then you haven't done them well enough because um, it you know, shouldn't stand out so but, but hopefully if I've done a good enough job on it people will watch it and you know other than having it at the back of their mind um, you know they, they won't be aware that they're missing any of the picture or that it it was actually originated in widescreen. It's quite quite a fun thing to do.
1: Sound it sounds it because I remember watching the old Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope to give it its full title it's still star wars to me and there's old pan and scans particularly between scenes of darth vader and princess leia and grand moff Tarkin. all the fun of that but uh final one for you peter you were down at the bfi how did you enjoy the screening
5: oh, it was, I, I loved it it's great it's, it's a really really fun animation it's a it's it's really funny and that's i think that's one of the things that the the animator Anne Marie and her team have been able to do really well. It's to it's to actually you know tease out the the humour that's there, and through the animation, I think um, uh, sort of amplify how funny it is. You know, so sometimes people say, "Oh, these these look a, li- a little bit more like you know closer to Scooby Doo animation than than Walt Disney," which. Which is both fair, fair and inevitable, really. You know, I think they they have to be fairly basic in terms of the complexity because the budgets are in thousands rather than the millions. But it was it was fabulous watching it, and I really, really enjoyed people people laughing in all the right places and being thoroughly entertained by it. Because that's you know that's that's what it's all about, really. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing
1: it and. Uh can wait to see everything the animation the restored episodes the telly snaps the lot bring them on that's what we like <laughs> absolutely but no thank you again for all the work you do and thanks for taking the time to have a chat again
5: yeah, it's always a pleasure kenny till the next
1: time thank you to peter for that always a pleasure to hear from him do you know he doesn't talk to other podcasts it's only us I nice. quite rightly too exactly if you want quality you know where to come exactly you come here so let's have a chat about the animation you mentioned earlier that it looks different from what we would get on what we had got on tv which i think i think it's a good thing because i know that some people like these things to be followed to follow slavishly to the original but for me if you're going to do it just use a limitless imagination and you know, obviously, you can certain things can be faithful and representative, but I'm quite happy, to, you know, to have to have something exciting and visually stimulating rather than something that replicates the look of a BBC studio or, indeed, as you said, Stevie, a cupboard, a cupboard. from 1966-67. What's your thoughts on it, Stevie?
3: I think with these things, you can be absolutely purist and say, "Oh, that's not real. That's not. That's not the real Doctor Who." Or Star Trek or whatever it is I think it's got to be faithful to the idea I don't think you can completely go off piste and you know redesign the TARDIS because you feel like it or whatever but I think it's an opportunity especially given the 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 filming back back then and so on to give people the opportunity to come into a story and enjoy it which they might never do I have a daughter It says, oh, it's black and white. I'm not watching that for a kickoff. So how long before people are saying, listen, this is too fuzzy for my HD holographic television, whatever comes <laughs> next. Therefore, I'm not going to watch it. I think the animations give it a, a new life and a new audience to a story that would otherwise be lost. So why not? Why not expand on that? I mean, uh, the interviews that I've heard from from cast and crew saying you know we wish we could have done the market bigger we wished it hadn't been so small we wish we could have done this and what we could do, do now with modern technology uh, it's not to change the story I, I i do hate it when the story is changed for the sake of it but to expand on what's there why not go for
2: it Yep. Yeah, no i agree uh, I, I i think as long as it's faithful to the to the story um, whatever elevates the story then becomes a plus uh, and i think that seems to be the case and um, with the this the bits the very brief snippets of the uh, of the animation that i've seen i'm glad that it's stuck more with the the first few trout animations that we had and, and and not so much following that sort of you might argue more faithful movement capture of the of the web of fear but uh, I prefer I prefer this style of of, of uh, animation
1: yeah because i think that some people in the vein anyone had issues with the way that Gary Russell had made the asian characters in the abominable Snowmen he'd instead of being white actors who'd been given makeup Gary changed it, so they did look genuinely mm-hmm. as if we were from Tibet and I think that that's the right thing to do in this day and age rather absolutely. than absolutely adhering to something that, mm-hmm. that
3: is that is offensive no I I think it, it wasn't seen as offensive at that time mm-hmm. um if if we continue to allow these things to be viewed they have to be have a warning at the beginning sort of reflecting the times but if you're creating new You should, you should, um, I was going to say make amends, fix. That's not, that's not really what I mean. You should, you should do what is right. You should animate it as intended. As the story, as the characters of the ethnicity should be, should be done. You can't live in the past and say, well, that's how it was. That's how it was done. So we'll, we'll continue because you compound the problem and it goes on forever. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I can't
2: remember now. I've not got an image in my head. Maybe, you know, you could flash one up there, Stevie. But uh, how the the fish people are are represented? I, I've got a vague sense, but I can't quite bring it to the to the front of my mind. Can you do some technical magic? Listen to that
1: typing. He's
2: Listen good, to isn't that. he? That's you no, know, that's that's pretend typing um, <laughs> for the benefit of our listeners. Yes. Who can't see the? Are stimulating visuals? Yes. I mean, as a nod to the concept, however, uh, in a story which is so lighthearted, the the notion that these people have been have been altered in that way uh, and deprived of liberty is actually pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of nestling <laughs> in the midst of this other ridiculous stuff. Um. So yeah, the, the, there is there's a, a a bit of darkness real darkness
1: like, this yeah it's almost like cybermen in a way sort of like yeah. stripping mm-hmm. away their individuality mm-hmm. to give them a uniformity although in this case it's um it's a fishy uniformity but yeah that mm-hmm. is a very dark i mean the, the scenes with holly at the start of episode two when she's on the operating table i mean i'd imagine mm-hmm. that is quite quite scary stuff i mean i'm operating tables are scary at the best of times and then to have mm-hmm. a doctor Who companion on it and there's like. Scalpels and uh, men in white coats and hats and stuff crowding around her. Yeah. There's something definitely terrifying about that, and yeah,
2: it's no, like a throw a throw forward to what happens to Perry.
3: Yes. Um, you know, yes. It was. Yeah. Yeah, but but for for that era, perhaps slightly more with with the syringe. I think the fish people with what you see in their eyes i mean forget about them saying oh we'll give you plastic gills i'd be more concerned about what they're going to do with my eyes mm-hmm. you know and seeing that seeing that blank expression it's like opening a cupboard can which episode it is and finding a cyberman inside not moving but it's that blank expression that's going to send children running from the room i think there's a much deeper message about slavery sitting mm-hmm. in there as well as genetic manipulation yeah. and against people's will. Um I, th- I think it's slightly glossed over. Yeah, you know, and then there's some good old union. Let's let's, you know yeah. <laughs> every fish out. It's those, know, it's it's fish together. Yeah.
2: <laughs> We've
1: just chatted about our Nothing thoughts. in the world can stop him now. Oh, now <laughs> Nothing in the world cover. can stop me now <laughs> He was he was dentist, to do it. Nothing. <laughs> you need Nothing. to make it more Germanic. Nothing and that's, that's his real accent, apparently. Yes, he's Austrian.
6: Yes.
3: Yep,
1: Joseph No, first. I'd, I'd,
3: no I, I don't think I should try that accent. I think it's going to come out horrible. Yeah, that that would be the burst The worst. <laughs> oh, no. Can I talk about cliffhangers? Yes, you can. <laughs> because I was quite interested to see there was a cliffhanger that didn't involve an episode closure, with Jamie literally hanging off the cliff in the cupboard. I found that quite funny for various reasons. Yep. One, it looked like they just borrowed the set from 1963 of the Daleks. You know, oh no, I have to jump over a small crack, <laughs> and it looked it looked a bit like that to me. Uh, and also because uh, I was doing my research, and of course the biggest cliffhanger of all, Julia Smith, director that we didn't have the EastEnders. <laughs> Nothing in the world can stop me now! But I thought it was nice to see an actual cliffhanger, and what I loved about her direction was when we had the king of the... King of the Atlanteans, I've just forgotten his name. King Thalos. You know, he'd... He He'd, he'd talk to the Doctor and said, I've made my decision. And turn around and there's you know himself you know you can do what you want with them and then in the next that was that was a cliffhanger we had the doctor who music all the titles etc and then they did one of their special ones where they didn't repeat that bit on the next episode the doors were flung over the rubber suited guards (laughs) sweated their way in and then he came in and they had your title and then he looked to them and then he delivered his line and I thought that's refreshing, that's nice to see <laughs> that we don't just have 45 <laughs> seconds from the last episode, <clears throat> let's do something different. So I love a good cliffhanger and a good performance and there you go.
1: you. Right Joseph first giving a good performance of that cliffhanger, there we go, there's an exclusive, you don't hear that often. But no, i have um, I was just thinking that given that we've discussed our thoughts on the animations and the fact they differ of course the thing that you can get on here is there's a tele-snap reconstruction so you can see how it originally was and it's married with the soundtrack and the photos that were taken off screen at the time now did either of you buy the original dvd release
2: yes i was one of those mugs yeah me too Um, which was much much delayed wasn't it it seemed to be pushed back and pushed back and pushed back because i remember it being a com- uh, coming soon and then it never came soon it was it was ages but yeah so i, I bought that because i'm a i'm a completist <clears throat> yeah but that 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 relied on a version of the tele snaps but it was sounds f- much more like a fun a fun serial than uh a serious <laughs> serial
3: it was the predecessor oh, to teletubbies wasn't it and the tele snaps uh, oh, oh, mm.
1: yeah they broke quite easily those toys i mean that release was delayed and delayed and then The BBC did put it out and it was like the bare minimum, because I think at that point they thought digital media was dead and nobody would want to buy it. So when they put together the TeleSnap reconstruction for that, it was the bare minimum. But why don't we hear from the man who did that original reconstruction, John Kelly? And he's also done some work on the new version. So we'll hear about that now.
0: Okay, hello, my name is John Kelly. I was involved uh, with the Doctor Who DVD range in various capacities from the year 2001. I still am, from time to time. Uh, But I think the reason Kenny wanted to talk to me was about the Telesnap recon on the Underwater Menace DVD, which I I wouldn't say produced, I'll say I compiled it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a definite difference between uh, producing and compiling in this case. So I think at the time... There was a bit of frustration, I think, I remember seeing that in Restoration Team website and such, like, because there'd been this lengthy delay in the release of The Underwater Menace, because you might be able to correct me wrong if I'm wrong in this or not, but I think there was almost like a feeling that physical media was dead.
0: I was thinking about that today. The first thing I was thinking about I was trying to put things into sequence, because I was trying to work out whether I did the Telesnap reconstruction for the Web of Fear 3 before I did The Underwater Menace. And I'm pretty sure that I did the underwater menace the year beforehand Now, as I've checked the emails, and I think this was two thousand and twelve. But to your point, my recollection is, I mean, the whole release was just just get it out. Let's release it. We does not don't pay any fuss to it, don't put much effort into it, just release it. Um, and I think that is reflected in the um in the final product. But we did do a commentary. I produced a commentary. There's four episodes worth of it on there. You know, we did, um, you know, we recorded two episodes in a studio, I think. Um, and I think the other two episodes were recorded either with me and Toby going around and meeting people or using archival material or a bit of both. So, you know, we, we sort of pushed it out for that. But, yeah, it didn't it didn't feel like, a huge amount of effort was being put into the release as a whole. I mean obviously it got restored. You know, Mark and Peter did their normal really great job. But beyond that, it seemed pretty bare.
1: I think that the big frustration was that the telesnap reconstruction was a sequential running order of the images as yeah. they were taken by John Cura and put to the soundtrack and that was it. There was no cuts jumping back and forth and we were just given a straight, here you are, that's it. Yeah,
0: I mean, my recollection is that there was essentially, uh, you know, uh, the offer of a couple hundred quid or something like that. I might be downplaying it, but it, it was very, very low budget. And the the instruction was just do that. Put, this, put the telesnaps in sequence where they should appear versus, you know, we had the camera scripts and uh, and put it like that against the soundtrack. And we said, well, that's going to be boring. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a very stimulating watch. And there's a lot of sequences where you don't get any coverage through the telesnaps. I think there's about 65 telesnaps for every episode. But, you know, if you've got a short scene, the probability is you don't have any telesnaps for it. So sometimes you you get to a scene of absolutely nothing to indicate what's going on there. And it's, it's kind of pointless, really, doing it that way. We said, well, I said, and I was talking to some other members of the team, up the budget a bit, not by any great extent. We weren't asking for thousands and thousands of pounds, maybe a few hundred, and we can do something much more interesting. But that was no, this is what we want, this is the budget, just do it. So, So I did it, and that's that. I spent a lot of time cleaning up the telesnaps because I was aware it was, it, you know, I'm not, you know, we're not stupid. We know what the reaction's going to be. You know, I wasn't very impressed with it. It took, you know, it didn't take very long to compile. But the, at the very least, I made them look nice. I made those telesnaps look nice. I'd scanned all the telesnaps during a visit to the BBC Written archive Centre. So I had nice raw scans of all of them. And those early scans of those uh, full-scap sheets are pretty good quality. Um, The later ones are not so well printed, and there's glue all over them. But the early ones, the kind of season four ones, are very good quality and very sharp prints. So they were able to sort of clean up really nicely. So I think we did did quite well there. But in terms of the final product, yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah so for those who don't know could you maybe explain just how small these original telesnaps are because I don't think some people realize just how tiny they are compared to what we're getting on our screens now.
0: I suppose a telesnap is roughly the size of a thumbnail-ish. It's smaller than a 35mm frame. I think it's a bit bigger than a 16mm frame. They are very small but they do capture every line from the television image you can see the scan lines so you've got quite a lot of detail there but if you get a bit of glue on one of these it, it can take out a huge portion of the picture with the smallest blob of glue and uh, and that detail is gone you can't get that glue off without ruining the telesnap so they are not very big they did do enlargements i think christopher barry had uh, quite a number of mm, quite big enlargements which were significantly big it's kind of like a small print And those are stunningly detailed. Well, I mean, not detailed, stunningly clear, and very nice to look at. But alas, no such thing for the underwater menace.
1: How would you say challenging is it to produce a recon like that? Because
0: (laughs) a recon like that, or a decent recon? Oh, a decent Um, recon. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's very challenging. So after this, the next year we did the Web of Fear three. Uh, of course, the web of fear had come back, bar, bar episode three. We needed to fill the gap. So, Paul Venezes came down to my house and we worked on it. We got, obviously, we have the telesnaps for that episode. We did a lot of reconstruction, a lot of fakery. The hand reaching to get the chocolate, that's drive Evans getting the chocolate bar is my hand. Paul CGI'd up a, a ludicrous chocolate bar wrapper, um, which is a bit of a gag. Campfields. There's uh, a lot of stuff. Campfields very milky. That's <laughs> typical, uh, typical immature humour by all of us, I'm afraid. But it made us laugh. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, these little things. Composites of existing t- telesnaps. There are a number of stills that we were able to use, and I think we, you know, you would kind of downgrade them. You would downgrade everything essentially to. Make it look like a Telesnap and have some consistency in the way it's presented, because you don't want to be going from an incredibly pristine kind of high-definition 35 mil print to a tiny glue-stained Telesnap. So you want to make it look consistent. It's a lot of work, an awful lot of work, and I I admire the dedication for the Loose Cannon team. Web of Fear Three was just one episode, and we obviously wanted to do a good job on that because it was a, a a big important release. Web of Fear come back, everybody was very excited so we wanted it to be good a few years after that I was asked to do the recons for the wheel in space for Brickbox so that was six ep- no, four episodes and gosh I have to tell you it was the most tedious boring thing I've ever done in my life <laughs> it's so mundane working through all these t- these pictures trying to make a, a quality composite is, is not what I'm particularly interested in doing I think the Web of Fear 3 and Wheel in Space turned out pretty well. Loose Cannon um, gave me some material for the Wheel in Space. They had done some CGI renders, which were very helpful for certain sequences where, again, there wasn't a huge amount of coverage uh, in the telesnaps. And so I would take stills from those CGI renders, maybe dirty them down a bit again to make them look more like the telesnaps and grade them a bit, you know. And, uh, and that's kind of worked out quite well totally different. I mean, I think you can watch those and be moderately entertained. I don't think you can really watch The Underwater Menace and and be entertained. I think you can watch it as a purist um, if you want to see, you know, okay, this is the shot that was happening as this audio was playing, then that's fine. But it's not entertaining.
1: Yeah, I think, I know what you mean. I think you're talking about, like, the light from the lift, and that's just on screen and that's all you can do with it because there's nothing else
0: yeah and I I have to you know on a, on a personal note it is a bit frustrating because I've always felt The Underwater Menace was a little bit hard done by in terms of the sort of fan opinion of it I've always liked episode 3 it's kind of it's kind of a very, it made, I would say sixty science fiction way. it's almost like a fifty science fiction story, it's got, it's got a sort of naive edge to it, but a lot of science fiction of the time was like that you know, um, and that doesn't devalue it in any sense, it's kind of these broad ideas of, you know we're going to drain the ur- ocean <laughs> into the earth's core and cut, crack the earth open like an egg, is crazy it's so crazy, well this might be true, but episode 3 was the only one that existed, obviously episode 2 came back and I really felt that that episode placed episode three with more context and I love episode two. I think it's a great episode. There's so much to enjoy and I think it makes episode three better. And I think if we had one and four back, I think it would be maybe not the best Doctor Who in the world, but I think it would be considered a good fun romp, you know? And it's a shame we couldn't do more to improve or well, you know, the viewing experience then.
1: So you've been working and helping Charles Norton with the new Telesnap Recon for the Blu-ray. So what can you tell us about that? How different is it?
0: It's uh, it's what we should have done back then is being done now. So I gave Charles the raw Telesnap scans that i have taken. Um, I think he had photographic material. I think you're going to have a totally different um, experience watching the new Telesnap Recon's. The other thing I did, which is quite fun, uh, is that I acquired an old BBC Araflex 16BL film camera, which, it, uh, which is the sort of camera they, they used on Doctor Who for like over 15 years. The, I think Abominable Snow went to The Awakening. Odds are it was being Araflex BL. And to test it, I got some black and white film stock, and I'm based in Dorset, and I went down to win and quarry. This is back in like 2008 or thereabouts I was a hundred foot reels I just messed about this quarry with this camera taking some shots anyway obviously the I think it's best known as being the location for destiny of the Daleks and the Blake 7 episodes uh, games but it was also the location for the Underwater menace it, the Volcanic island of Atlantis. If I, I think it is Atlantis there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, he was able to use bits and pieces from that as part of the Telesnap recon as well.
1: That's fantastic. There we go. New info. That's that's brilliant. I suppose that's one of the great things because they're very recognisable. Sort of like the two tunnels that have been blasted through the rock. That the sort of yeah. squarish shape.
0: It's very much like that today. Um, I think it might be cordoned off at the moment um, as we speak. This is, uh, no, no, is it, no, it November uh, to, uh, 23 now. You can see i lose track of time. But you, you, know, you used to be able to just trot on down there and walk about there and all the sort of ruined buildings you see in Destiny are still where the, the big rock the TARDIS lands on is still there. I think for the underwater menace, I think they took the um, half-scale TARDIS prop and they have it landing on the, the beach down there. I say beach, it's more like just a ledge. <laughs> but um, it, it's a stunning place, it's very beautiful. I mean, I think people use it for rock climbing and all that sort of thing, but it looks more or less identical to how it did back then. So if you, if it's open and you're in the area, I'd definitely recommend a respectful visit.
1: Sounds good. I'm often down in Salisbury visiting family, so it's not a huge trek away.
0: Salisbury, yeah, down to Blandford, uh, then down to Poole, and then along down to Wareham, and you're basically, basically there. Yeah, it, it, definitely worth a visit.
1: Okay, maybe I'll just do that.
0: Uh, the, the village is called Worth Travers. You can park there, there's a nice pub there, the Compass. Um, I think there's a tea room as well, actually, so if you're going during the, the, the week or open day, you can get a nice cream tea. Even better even better the, uh, the, the remarkable thing actually is that the I mean nowadays the site is only reached by this track it's not very level and the notion that the BBC has been repeatedly been down there with you know vans catering Daleks uh, you know Federation Troopers you know all that is just crazy it, you know it's quite amazing work so you know well done for them for going down there and doing it
1: so have you had a look at the finished version of the new Telesnap Recon?
0: I have seen. I saw initial drafts of Charles's drafts of episode one and four, and I gave him notes. <laughs> so I have, in fact, not seen the final versions before. There weren't many notes to give him because Charles is obviously, uh, you know, a a great guy and really and b a very talented guy as well. So. You know he he knows what needs to be done to, to put, pull this together and make it work so i'm looking forward to seeing
1: the final result i can assure you you're not the only one but no john thank you so much for your time been a real pleasure thanks kenny good to talk to you and thanks to john for that always interesting here now something that i've made a note about here that we haven't mentioned yet is the music from dudley simpson Going all sixties electronica and of course we all know that bit of music from the Fish People, which I think we should put on in the background now. Yeah, it's an interesting piece, isn't it? It's very iconic. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you, as soon as you hear that, you know exactly what story it's from.
2: Yeah. yeah, and it fits beautifully in with the in with the whole the whole narrative. I, I find mm-hmm. it, it just it has to happen. You have to have a bit of a dance. So yeah hair standing up in the back of my neck, even as I think about it
3: now. Well, I think we found out why they had such little space in the studio, because the rest of it was probably taken up with a pre-synthesizer <laughs> to produce the music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Dudley Simpson stuff. Um, I, I do think, I mean, they, they spend an awful lot of time on reconstructions and animations, and I think it's coming soon. But the sound is let down because it's muffled. It's just the recording techniques of those days. And I I long for technology, which is nearly there, that will allow that to be cleaned up much better. Because I think that will aid how we view the performances. And I Mm. think it will aid how we appreciate the music. There's only so much, and it's not even a bit rate, as we talk about now, but there's only so much information that can be stored on this stuff without it turning to mush. And that's what happens. It's like watching the Flash Garden series of, of old. The orchestra didn't sound like that, but that's all the bandwidth they had to record it on. And we, we need some kind of reverse engineering to help with the sound now and I'm sure it I'm sure it'll come. Is it Mark
2: Ayers, uh, who's done the, the remastering of of the of the music and the soundtrack for, for this one yes it he's, must be.
1: he's worked his usual magic he's gone through mm-hmm. it so when we buy our blu-rays and pop them through our super tvs the sound that will come out will definitely be a significant improvement on what we've had before so it's, it's i really, love the way that the effort that goes into yeah. remastering the pictures and the sound and everything yeah. like that is i don't think there can be any other tv series in the world that gets this much attention
3: and, and I think probably helps other restorations. I think because it's a passion, You know, obviously it's work for people, but it's also a passion to do this. And then it goes on to something else because the hard work has been done. So I really look forward to hearing what they've managed to do. But every time I hear an interview with people doing this, they're always talking about the next generation of equipment, the next generation, they've done so much as they can now and then there'll be this then there'll be that then there'll be the other but it's all money isn't it you could spend you could spend your life working on one serial not as
2: much as I'm looking forward to the to see what Mark Ayers has done uh, on the the dead planet or the Daleks um, <sighs> for, the, for the for the 60th oh. uh, I just read that tonight and was full of
3: full of wonder and awe yeah, I, I read about what, it tonight, and I is. thought yeah. I surprised Kenny with it, but apparently he knew since January of oh, oh, last year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it was definitely this year, definitely this year, because um, <laughs> I know I remember. I think um, there was there was a bit about it in the Daily Mirror as well. They'd run a bit saying that they were looking at colourising a a classic story, and the fact they've gone for the Daleks is great. I mean, who knows? They could maybe
3: show it on BBC Four, you know, one episode a night. And um, that would be quite exciting. Maybe, th- maybe they could, and maybe it'll be available on the Hooniverse on iPlayer alongside the original. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it will be. But that's the thing. I mean,
1: it was. I think there's just going to be so many surprises that we haven't even heard about yet that will drop. You know, by the time the anniversary comes around, so it's it's all very exciting. I'm definitely starting to get that hype because as we record, did anybody watch the David Tennant narrated documentary last night or the no, concert? No, not yet.
3: Yeah. I've nope, seen the haven't. concert. Yeah. You've seen the concert? Yeah. Or heard the concert, oh, sorry. Or you've heard
2: um, No, I haven't. I I uh, I just dipped into the universe for the first time this evening and I watched a little bit of The Time Medler, TARDIS oh, Tales.
3: That's yes. a classic, isn't it?
2: And and I, I, I was embarrassed at how quickly I got a little lump in my throat. I thought oh. this is this is silly. <laughs> so <laughs> I then went and had dinner and calmed down.
1: Yeah. No, I think they're beautifully done. All six of them, and fingers crossed, there's more. I mean, if only they could sort out the rights for the TV movie, and we could get Grace or Chang Lee popping in. Other than that, they should just go out and mm-hmm. film another mini episode with Paul McGann and get Nicola Walker or Sheridan in. And uh, yeah, that would be that would be rather cool, just to give us a little bit of extra Eighth Doctor content and a mini adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it only takes what they did Night of the Doctor in two days and a limited number mm-hmm. of sets. So they could do another one. Go on, Russell. That
3: was impressive. But mm-hmm. maybe they have. Maybe they have. Mm. Who, knows? Who knows,
1: Kenny? Who knows? In this case, Kenny I genuinely knows. don't. I don't in this case. I know very little <laughs> about what uh, what Russell's been up to in those studios. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, Kenny
3: knows very little. Did you hear that, John? He knows very yes. little. Look at that grin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So little, you know, Kenny. <laughs>
1: he's about to chew the scenery. Oh, don't, don't, one don't, 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 don't. Like Professor Zarov. So yeah. But no, I'm genuinely looking forward to watching this because I think when I get these releases, I tend to watch the animation first of all in black and white, then I'll watch it in colour. And then I'll watch the Telesnap recon. But at different phases, you know, I'll put on commentaries or production text. All the different options that are available you'll watch the live episodes and just do you know all these things just so you can maximize it there's so many different ways to watch and get enjoyment from it and i think again that's another wonder of these releases
3: could i ask one more awkward question try me okay so in this version of atlantis the doctor kind of let's how we say it, cracks it open and lets the sea in so um it's his fault that Atlantis is destroyed. I know Zaroff was going to blow it up, but um, are we thinking body count here? Not including fish people, because obviously they can swim. <laughs> Reiki, that's a good question.
1: I didn't think of that. I was just thought, oh, they have all escaped to the upper levels and that bit won't be drowned, but everything underneath will be away.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. Yeah, I just picture them all running
1: up the shaft.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
1: what... Bad Kenny, sorry, it's just me. I'm just but, bad.
2: I, this is why White House is livid <laughs> with this podcast.
3: Yeah, yes. You just can't anyway, help yourself. That that was my thought. That was my my last thought when when it was finished. I thought it's a bit like the end of Star Wars. You know, Death Star's been destroyed. Hmm. Big body count. Who who wasn't a stormtrooper? who was just kind of painting or decorating or slave dinner ladies yeah. dinner ladies uh, quick fit fitters you know nice droids just yeah <laughs> nice droids
6: yeah. Gonk,
3: gonk droids so yep. anyway that as in a lot of you know death follows the doctor or mm-hmm. the doctor follows death that <laughs> then something to consider for the next time he takes a trip to atlantis maybe he maybe needs to Just uh, go easy with the old seawalls.
2: Yes. Maybe that is Doctor Who's secret. You know, when he says I've got a secret, maybe it's that he kills lots of people. (laughs) Or that people die around me
3: all the time. But that's a spoiler.
1: That sounds like a River Song kind of thing to say as well.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, It's maybe his addiction just to letting water into places that will flood.
1: Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, no, I've stopped myself from making a rude comment there, and I'm quite proud of myself. Well done! It's a good job he didn't go to Holland.
2: I uh, uh, see where you're going with that. Right, let's just
1: this
3: moves swiftly. Let's just, on. just, just, just no, just, just no, Kenny
1: <laughs> Yeah, I get told that a lot. It's funny. Um, quite, but yeah, I, I will be watching this when I get it. I'll be popping that on. Uh, or as this episode goes out, I will have popped on and watched at least uh, one of the versions in completion. I do have it ordered at my local HMV so I'll be going to pick that up in the morning and uh, supporting my local music retailer and video and DVD retailer Quite right Quite right. So there we go
2: Yes. Support your local shops. A... Yeah Yeah. well, well you I'm not saying anything no. Mine's coming oh. from Amazon. <laughs> oh.
1: Are you not going to kerblam it?
2: Well, that's, that's another option, isn't it? Yes, I'll just get it delivered. It's yes. Robot. That sounds like a plan.
1: That sounds like a plan. So there we go. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed that. Always good to discuss one of Doctor Who's sometimes often overlooked stories and give it the attention that it definitely deserves because... Even though it might be rubbish in places, there's still plenty to love about it. Absolutely. Next time, time in the yeah, run. Yeah. No, no, no. Save that. That said, the soundtrack's <laughs> on the way, which I cannot wait because I love Kef McCullough's stuff. Very Pet Shop Boys, this score. and um, yeah. Anyway, we'll have to try and get Kef on at some point. That would be fun. So yes, Stevie, thank you very much for your time. John, thank you for yours.
2: Thank you.
3: It's always a pleasure. No. Kenny. Stevie. I'm just wondering, you know, if you've got any fish-related music that you might be hiding underneath that massive scarf of yours that you well, want to play out with.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Steve, because I actually do have something in mind. But there's it's only really one line from a song which seems appropriate, given that what the Atlanteans wanted to do to Polly to transform her into a fish person, because then she could have said and I'll breathe underwater because I like the way it feels so we're going to have Love Machine from Girls Aloud because it's such a blooming great track and it's only one line but I don't care it's so good let's have that one
2: whoa, whoa. can't wait to bop around my clutch bag
1: <laughs> <laughs> cheers everybody we'll be back tomorrow and we'll be back on the book quest but which one is it going to be? who knows there's only one way to find out you know the podcast to listen to bye bye Bye
6: bye ladies you're damn right you can't read a man
2: Oh, enough. Stop it. You, you
1: should go join blind.
2: In. Join in.
6: <laughs> You're just going through a phase, Stevie. That's all. <laughs> enough. Enough.